0: All right, hey, let's jump into things this evening. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4 is where we're going to be this evening. If you're just joining us and yet it's your first time to Saints Hill, we are in a series called The Church Jesus Longs For. And what we're doing in this series is we are kind of our desire is to get an apostle's vision into our church plant. We're a brand new church. We just started in October, and we're looking at to the Apostle Paul as he spoke so frequently into various church plants within the first century around the Mediterranean. We're looking to him for what would you say to us? What is the church that Jesus longs for? And so almost if you could imagine taking the different letters that Paul wrote to these various churches, and if you could kind of comb through them with a fine-tooth comb and kind of pick out what are the highlights of these letters. We've been going around to these various passages that we see as some of the highlights of Paul's letters to these various churches, and we've been looking at them in, in this context. What does this mean for us today, 2019, here in Newburgh, Oregon? So we're going to read out of Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Go ahead and look down at your Bibles with me. It says this, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. When I was 17 years old, I started following Jesus. I'd grown up in a Christian home and my parents had put on display the character of Christ brilliantly, but I was captured, enraptured, fascinated by the world. And so I had spent, I guess, my teenage years just in whatever resources I had went to, I need to find out what the world is like. Have you guys ever heard of, uh, what is that thing that um, Amish people do when they get, like Dwight Schrute does it. They do, the rumspringa, yeah, rumspringer. or is that what, somebody said that. Anyway, they, when you're like 16, and you have grown up in uh, the Amish uh, land, family, I don't know, when you grow up Amish, when you're 16, you get an opportunity to go taste all that the world has to offer, and make a decision for yourself, do you want to continue being Amish or not? And basically, that's what I I did. My parents did not release me to do this. I just picked it on my own. I was like, I'm going to just figure out, like, what does the world have to offer? And I found myself at the age of 17 in a world of hurt. Ever been there? I was there. When I, you know, Jesus actually says in the scriptures, those who are forgiven of much love much. When I came to Christ, I was set on fire for him. I remember uh, the first time I ever heard God speak to me, it was just like this, it wasn't an audible voice, it was just this thought that came into my mind, a thought that I would have never have had on my own, it was about my worth, my value, and the mission that God had for my life, and I'm just going, I've never conceived of that, that has to be God. And I remember um, I reached out to some close friends of mine, just, hey, wh- okay, you guys go to church, what happened to me. Help me and uh, these two friends of mine, they kind of explained oh, to like, oh, you just heard from God, and, uh, and you need to give your life to God, and so I remember just beginning this really like six month process of learning what it meant to give my life over to Jesus. I was so zealous at this point in my life that nobody was safe around me. I was like constantly telling people about Jesus. You don't know about Jesus? Well, I gotta tell you about Jesus, because sorry, you can argue with the scriptures, you can't argue with this testimony, baby. Here it comes. And I was just like, I was on fire for him. I remember um, I found myself at a laundromat. I don't know how I found my, We have a great laundry system at my parents' house. But somehow, I found myself at this laundromat at the age of 18, and I had just watched this, like, evangelism documentary. And I was just, have you ever, like, watched Todd White YouTube videos, and you're just like, I'm going to change the world. <laughs> like, wh- where's the wheelchairs? Just show me the wheelchairs, God. I, I just got, I, like, had watched this video, and I, I was, like, so passionate about the Lord, I, I, there was this older couple, they're probably like in their 70s, sitting at the laundromat, the only other people in the whole laundromat, and I'm like, I gotta tell them about Jesus, so I go up to them, I'm like, hey, um, have you guys heard of Jesus, they're like, yeah, we're 70, <laughs> like, we've been around for a long time, <laughs> And I was like, well, I, got, I but you don't get it. He's crazy. And so, I, you know, I was on fire. This period of time in my life just set me on a trajectory just longing for people to get the same fire. Longing to see people get the life that I was tasting. I mean, like, be honest. Is there anything more exciting than seeing someone get free? You know, like when you just see somebody get free in their life, you're like, Oh, it's amazing. Whenever I see God touch somebody's life or move in, in, a, in a supernatural way, I'm like, I'm in. All over again? Do I need to get re-baptized? What is it, Lord? Like, I just want to dedicate myself to this. This passage that we're looking at this this evening is probably the shortest passage that we're going to look at in this entire series. Uh, but I found it super important for us as a family. There are many different um, facets of this text, but I want to primarily focus on this instruction. Look down at your Bibles, verse 5. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, it sounds nice, but who are outsiders? Isn't, how do you, I don't know if I like that word. Who are the outsiders? What does he mean? Well, remember for Paul, there is a dichotomy in all of life between those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. If you uh, are unfamiliar with that uh, kind of lingo, go back, listen to the first two messages of this uh, series. But here he's referring to people who are literally outside of Christ, not incorporated into the promises of Jesus. And what does he say about them? When you're around them, be wise. Make the most of every opportunity that you're given with them. Make sure that your words, they're seasoned with salt. So when people hear them, they're like, those are some tasty words that you were just speaking. Know how to answer people. What we have, I think, in this text is we have a leader, a father, speaking to a church from his own experience. Paul is in prison when he's writing this letter. If you just look up at verse 3, it says that he wants to proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. He's been in prison because he's been preaching the gospel. And he is, in a sense, in this text, sharing what has worked for him. He's made the most of every opportunity, including, in his mind, the opportunity of being in prison. What a great opportunity, being in prison. See, most of the time, if you're in prison, contact with the outside world is forbidden because you could be planning some sort of escape or something like that, but Paul isn't planning escape. He's just planning revival. That's what he's doing. So he's not in despair. He's too busy for despair. He's too busy making outsiders insiders through the power of the gospel, and that's what we see in this text tonight. Now... Kind of a disclaimer, I suppose, before we jump into this. There isn't a specific personality type that Paul instructs to be wise with outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. He's like, hey, are you, a, are you an extrovert? Okay, good. I don't really care about those introverts. Be wise with outsiders. No, it's to everybody, be wise with outsiders. And, and there isn't like a specific job that certain people have that Paul says, hey, if you have this job, make sure you're wise with outsiders. The truth is that every follower of Jesus is called to be a witness to the truth of Jesus regardless of personal preference. In fact, Jesus actually said as much in Acts 1. He said this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my what? Witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The joy, that peace that you feel when the Holy Spirit comes upon us comes with a responsibility to witness. So this evening, here's what I want to talk about. The church Jesus longs for witnesses to outsiders. The church that Jesus longs for witnesses to outsiders. Now, for all of you note takers, this is a dream message because it comes in three parts the why, the what, and the how. Why do we share our faith? What is good evangelism? And how do we do it? Why do we share our faith? What is good evangelism? And how do we actually do it? So why do we share our faith? Well, very simply, we share our faith because there are outsiders. How do you hear that word? Does it it offend you? You hear the word outsider, you're like, whoa, hang on a second. Because we live in a time where we don't want there to be anyone who is an outsider. In fact, one of the basic lessons that we all learned as children is to not exclude people, right? Those of you who are parents are like, yeah, remember, I'm teaching my kid, don't exclude them when you're on the playground. And it seems basic, it seems like just such a given to not exclude, so why can't Paul and Jesus get it right? But what we fail to understand is that no one is excluded from God. In fact, Jesus said this, over my dead body will anyone be excluded, but still many step over his dead body to choose to be outside of Christ. And so our ministry is one of reminding and teaching and demonstrating the power of the resurrection, a life seasoned with the taste of heaven, so that people will come into Christ rather than stepping over Christ, amen? We share our faith for three different reasons. The first reason is this, monotheism means evangelism. Monotheism means evangelism. We're monotheists, did you guys know that? We believe that when Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, we believe that he meant it. That if you want to know what the Father is like, look to Jesus. We we believe that when Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I am the life, that he meant it. The pursuit of another way to God simply reveals our cards that we would prefer to find a way to God that doesn't require as much as Jesus requires. But disciples of Jesus those of us in this room, are those who come to the conclusion that Jesus' lordship is equal to life. There is no life without lordship. There is no life without his lordship. So if he is the way, then we believe all expressions to get to nirvana, heaven, Allah, whatever it is, are demonic in nature and against the testimony of Christ, Look, you're like sitting there, you're like, well, that's not PC to say Jesus isn't politically correct, he's just correct, okay? And when you know Jesus is who he says he is, then there becomes a demand on our lives to testify to that truth, right? So we we have to evangelize because we believe that he is the way. Secondly, we evangelize because we can't not share our faith. We can't not share our faith. It's what we leak. It's what we give off when we're abiding in him. My wife, Emily, and uh, Jake's wife, Becky, they work at this winery. And my wife has been uh, going to nursing school, and she's taken a couple months off work, and she just went back uh, a couple days ago to um, work an event that they had. And she came home, and she said there was this gal that she used to work with um, who said to her, oh, man, I missed you so much. I just love working with you and Becky because every time I'm around you, guys, there's just this peace that I feel. There's just this joy that I feel. There's just something about you that's just so different than anybody else that I'm around day to day. See, here's the reality: where we go, we carry the presence of God. He made you his temple. There is a tangible, unexplainable thing that we give off as believers. And it's the scent of heaven. See, how do you smell like God? You spend time with him. You get close to him. And he actually give off his perfume. People get around us and they're like, oh, what is that scent? What is that? And you're like, it's Zion. It's a new ancient line of uh, perfume. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> See, when we're abiding in Christ, our evangelism will, in a sense, be unavoidable we have to give an explanation for the joy and the peace that we live with, right? Acts 10.38 uh, says this. You know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Why did he do all those things? Because God was with him. The witness of God enables and demands heaven coming. When we host his presence and we stay tuned to his voice, obedience is what stands between us and the kingdom coming in power. If evangelism in our lives is is avoidable, we have reason to question how much of us actually belong to Jesus. Thirdly, we witness to the truth because of the fruit it produces, the fruit of evangelism. Paul says this in Romans 1, verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Do you ever have those moments where you read a passage and it just knocks you back almost? You're like, whoa, oh. Did you guys get that? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why are you not ashamed? Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God The story of Jesus is powerful. It can radically change someone's life. It can can turn things completely upside down. You see, I, I think that we don't pursue evangelism for really two reasons. The first reason is this. We haven't yet felt the gospel's power in our own lives or seen it in the lives of other people. So we're like, I don't know if it's that good. And secondly, we have other pursuits that distract us from the fullness of discipleship. Like, I'm kind of busy just doing this thing, or I'm just doing my thing over here, or whatever else it is. Paul had lived both of these. He knew God's power, and he devoted his life to the ministry of reconciliation, which in his mind, required evangelism. There's no way to be given the mantle of reconciliation and not talk about it. So here's what I want to do this evening. I want to give you just a little inspirational glimpse of what witnessing to the truth could do through your life today. I'm going to show you a passage that's from the end of Philippians chapter 4 and what we have here is Paul in prison writing a letter to the Philippian church and this is how he ends it. He says this, greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household i want you to imagine this imagine that you're the guard the prison guard who gets stuck with paul (sighs) paul's mentality is to make the most of every opportunity and to be wise with outsiders so here's what paul is probably like your first day on the job with paul you show up and paul's like hey man we're gonna be spending a bunch of time together so let's just get it out of the way i gotta know what's your enneagram number And the guard's probably like, oh, well, um, I I just did it with my wife. I'm a six on the Enneagram. He's like, oh, wow. Oh, you must love people being loyal, dependable, and faithful. What if I told you I know a king who is the definition of faithfulness? Just sneaks it in there. And slowly... He walks this guard through understanding what Jesus' resurrection means and he gives the guy an example and in word, reason to question his doubt that Jesus may in fact actually be the king of the world. And you could just imagine this guard, he's like, what the heck is going, who is this guy? And as he's passing the other guard in the hall, he's like, hey, you gotta watch out for this guy, Paul. He's a little wacky, but I I don't know. just ask him about this guy he knows named Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, He's got some crazy story about him. And slowly, the power of the gospel begins to spread throughout the guards and the servants. And then eventually, it leaks its way into the household of Caesar, so much so to the point that there are some within the very home of the Caesar of the Roman Empire who are no longer outsiders, but have been made insiders by the power of the good news of Jesus. Jesus. And he's like, oh, Philippian church, yeah, by the way, those in Caesar's household who are, want, who are in Christ, they also send their greetings. Just powerful. Paul understood that there was nothing else worth living for than Jesus. Do we actually believe that? Because I'll be just honest with you guys, there are many things in my life that I think are worth living for other than Jesus. And I just feel the Lord through this message, what he's had on my heart is he's actually cracking my heart back open and saying, Devote yourself once again to life. Paul believed that the power of the gospel was its ability to rescue, redeem, and give a lifelong trajectory of relationship with God. When I thought about this passage, I couldn't help but think of an evangelism movement that so embodied this truth of there being one way to live when Jesus gets a hold of your heart. And that movement was the Jesus People movement of the 1960s and the 1970s. Do we have any Jesus people in the house who remember this movement at all? I know. I remember. We talked about that one time, a couple of you guys. Okay. Um, well, I'm just going to do a little education for all of us youngsters. Recently, I read this book called God's Forever Family. Fantastic book. It just chronicles with incredible detail the movement that began in Southern California and spread up and down the West Coast. Thousands upon thousands of hippies began making their way into churches largely because churches began focused evangelism efforts where the hippies lived. Powerful stuff. And and what, what the pastors and churchgoers of the day hadn't realized about the hippies is that they were so sold out and dedicated to music and drugs and sex that once Jesus got a hold of their hearts, they put all that energy and tenacity into him. And Jesus actually became like famous again. Here's a, a clipping from uh, Time Magazine. This is some, from sometime in the 70s. He was on the face of Time Magazine. There was a Jesus revolution that was going on across the United States. At the time, Billy Graham was continuing to gain popularity around the world, and he was famous for the saying, One way, the Jesus way. Could you say that? So good. One way, the Jesus way. And he would just stand, Billy Graham would just stand up there. I don't have the anointing, but he would just stand up there. One way, the Jesus way. And people were like, That's, I'm, I'm in. It's all for Jesus, right? And the Jesus people adopted this saying, and they began to brand it. They began to live it. I even saw a photo once. Yeah, this is uh, Billy Graham with some uh, hippies. Uh, one way, the Jesus way. Uh, they began to brand this. I saw this photo once of, a, of an old Levi's trucker jacket. And on the back, embroidered was just a, a, the the index finger up, one way Jesus. I was like, oh man, I, where's that jacket now? That'd just be awesome to have. Um, what what happened during this time period was tons of evangelism. People started going back to church. Young people who were radically sold out for the Jesus lifestyle resulted in many outsiders becoming insiders. Here's a photo of some baptisms at Pirates Cove in New Point, uh, Newport Beach down in California. That's uh, This is um, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. They, this was their baptism service that they did. Just people piled in, tons of hippies, just giving their life to Jesus, getting baptized into his resurrection and into Christ. Just, oh, I... I honestly look at this picture all the time and just say, do it again here. Do it again here, Lord. I want to see. We've got another photo of this. Just so awesome. Like, next week, Jake, I want you wearing what that guy's wearing, okay? Um, (laughs) In the language of Paul, these people were seasoned with salt. There was something about their lives that nobody else had, and so everybody wanted it. I believe God is going to raise up a new revolution of evangelism here in the Northwest, and I believe that our church will become a hub of ragtag people longing to get a glimpse and taste of the Messiah. You guys don't want that? Okay, because I want it, and I'm going to be on fire for it until you get on fire for it. Because I believe that what God, I really mean this. There's something very special that's happening across the nation of people There is there is actually prophesied by Lou Angle that there would be a return to the Jesus revolution again in this generation. And the, the, I, I want, this isn't in here. I just feel like we need to say this. Have you guys ever had a crazy thought come into your mind and it's like something that just seems so impossible that you already start disagreeing with it internally? Have you ever had that? I've had it. I had it like today. Uh, the difference between people who see revival and people who do not see revival is in that split-second moment when you hear the crazy thought, the crazy idea, the crazy dream that God may be behind that seems impossible, and you say, I'll trust you for it, and I will agree with you. So I really mean it, guys. I'm challenging you right now that if your hopes are not too big for you, then they're not big enough. There's a uh, revival that I love called the Revival of the Hebrides, and it's these uh, Scottish is- islands um, back in the early 1900s, and it basically began with two 80-year-old women who dedicated themselves to pray between the hours of 10 p.m. and 4 a.m. for a revival in the youth on their island, and from that sparked this incredible revival There was nobody left on these islands who didn't believe in Jesus. People gave their lives to him in powerful ways. And there's a prayer specifically, I've shared it, I think, uh, a couple different times here, uh, from the blacksmith of the town. It just says, the blacksmith, it's his quote, Um, where he, he basically said, God, you promised to pour water out on thirsty ground and I'm not seeing it. Fulfill your covenant engagement. That kind of prayer is the kind of prayer that says, God, I believe now, Do the rest. I believe, now do the rest. We're called believers for a reason, and it's that our belief actually unleashes the potential of the kingdom. See, God doesn't just come and say, I'm just gonna do kingdom wherever I want it because I'm the king. He's looking for a group of people who have had their hearts so massaged and softened and moved by him that they would be willing to say yes, no matter the cost. Are you willing to say yes, no matter the cost? I want to be, and I want us to be the kind of church that says, I don't care what the cost is, we must see awakening, we must see renewal, we must see this city changed by coming into relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, honestly, a big question comes up here, especially in a place like we live, should we share our faith? Is it ethical to share our faith, right? What, is, what exactly is good evangelism? Because I've only seen some kind of messed up versions of it. Uh, re- recently, Christianity Today took a poll with the Barna Group to look at differences between generations, and the findings were funny and shocking and disappointing, all in just one big swath. Uh, I think we have uh, some of the findings. Okay, so orange is represented by millennials, blue is Gen X, green are the baby boomers, and yellow are the elders. And uh, it, it, just the, the first question was this, or the first statement was this, and it's, it's all agree or somewhat agree, that sort of a thing. Part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus. Across the board, everybody's like, yes, totally. That's why you can sit in here and you're like, yes, be a witness to Jesus, yes. Uh, the second question is this, the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus once again unequivocally, everybody's like, yes, that is the best thing that could happen. He's life. Skip down to verse, uh, or to (laughs) verse. Uh, Skip down to the fourth uh, statement. It says this. I am gifted at sharing my faith with other people. Millennials, 73% gifted individuals with sharing their faith. Just powerful stuff. But then, here's where things get a little bit weird. The next one. It is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they, believe, that they will one day share the same faith, 47% of millennials agreed with that statement, that it's wrong. Look, I'm a millennial. I'm 28. There couldn't be more of a millennial statement ever. We're amazing at it, but we think it's wrong. <laughs> I'm amazing at it, but I just don't want to blow you away with it, all right? I'm just joking, but I I think that we have fully bought into allowing the culture around us to not only convince us that they aren't evangelizing us with their own worldviews, but also that it is narrow and wrong to place our beliefs into the mix publicly. We've believed that, guys. We need to break off that lie. Here's the reality. Everybody's evangelizing everybody. Everybody's evangelizing uh, a couple years ago, I, um, any fans of Something Corporate? Ever remember that band, Something Corporate? Just like, my brother, that's it. Okay, one back here, thank you. I dated myself a little bit with that one. All the college kids are like, something who? Um, it was a band from back in the early 2000s. Anyway, I go to uh, this guy's concert at the Crystal Ballroom. This is, yeah, two and a half years ago or so. And uh, it, it happened to be the same day as the San Bernardino shootings. It was a horrific day uh, in the United States. Um, there was some Islamic extremists came into this company party, essentially, and gunned some people down. And uh, people were, you know, it's kind of a, it's a somber thing. Uh, it's a scary thing. So we're at this concert. He's playing these songs, and he pauses in between songs, and he basically says, you know what? The world is evil and sick and twisted. But you know what? One thing that they can't take away from us it's partying and singing and getting completely wasted tonight, and everybody's like, "Yeah, that's amazing!" And you know, I—I th- I thought for a second, I thought, "Oh my gosh, you know what's happening to me? I'm getting evangelized right now." That's a worldview about what the purpose of life is and what can't be taken away from them, which it really, in all reality, could be taken away from them. Um, and I just got evangelized by Andrew McMahon. Holy cow! See, we have to understand that the news, whatever outlet it is, is designed to give you a worldview. That school curriculum is designed to give you a worldview. That advertisements are designed to give you a worldview. Every political policy has a worldview about what human flourishing is deep within it. And more and more... Our culture is becoming hostile to the Jesus worldview. The, and we shouldn't feel bad about this. I want Hopefully we'll bring this out. This isn't something for us to go, oh, poor us. No, 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 no. See, uh, Tim Keller recently said that he believed that the United States culture is increasingly becoming more like the first century's culture in its view of Christianity. Remember, Christianity exploded in the first century, so hang with me. We have moved from Christianity being respected and in some parts of the country just assumed you go to church, to being sequestered to private life, hey, you do you, whatever you believe is your belief, to now, I believe, that we exist in a time where it, it, it seems to be dangerous for anyone to have Christian ideology. The culture now holds that to even have Christian values is a form of patriarchy and is damaging to communities. And I don't have time to go into all of that this evening, but I must say there is a giant misunderstanding of who Jesus is in our culture today. And it's probably due in part to many followers of Jesus having lost the saltiness of Jesus See, many feel bad about the idea of trying to change someone's mind about Jesus because we've lost our understanding of what Jesus offers. Uh, There's a difference between proselytizing and evangelism, and here it is. Proselytizing is giving a monologue and argument for faith. Evangelism is sharing the life that you have found. We must make this distinction. Our message isn't about someone's actions, but primarily it's about their identity. Our primary concern is not with somebody behaving correctly, but with finding fullness and being in Christ. Dallas Willard he lamented with what witnessing has become and he wrote this. Witnessing is not thought of as bringing it, witnessing is not thought of as bringing knowledge, but as attempts to convince people to do things. Witnessing has turned into a kind of process of bothering people. And very few people witness because of this. See, our primary message isn't one of getting something from God. It's knowing God himself, receiving the promises of who he said he would be, the counselor, a warrior, a comforter, and a king. See, imagine this. Getting a thing from God but having to give up your deeply held identity is just not worth it for most people. They're like, "Okay, so I guess I'm going to go to church and do some like practices or, you know, join a Bible study or whatever it is, come and sing songs, but I have to give up this deeply held identity." Yeah, no thanks. But what if it is? What if it isn't believe this and do this? It's this is who you could be if you were in Christ. Jesus longs to renew minds and to heal bodies and become friends with humans like he was with Abraham, and it is the lack of lifestyle display of this truth that I believe turns many off to the idea of coming into Christ. Like, I just don't know. It doesn't seem that worth it in your life. So so from this text this evening, three commitments for good evangelism. The first is this, verse two, devote yourselves to prayer. You want to be wise with outsiders? You want to make the most of every opportunity Devote yourselves to prayer. Good evangelism begins with getting God's heart for an individual or family and constantly bringing them before the Father, strategizing for the purpose of seeing them come to life. See, what prayer does, it makes us pause so that we don't witness or evangelize out of adrenaline instead of presence. We want to do everything out of his presence. Well, what we, 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 want, we want to know what is the dove doing? what is the Holy Spirit moving? And then we want to go in that direction. So what prayer does is it aligns our hearts for an individual to get what God thinks about that individual burned into our minds. Secondly, Paul says this, look back down at your Bibles, devote yourselves to prayer being watchful. Being watchful, what does it mean to be watchful? Well, I think it means that we understand the times, We understand the season that our culture is in or that a specific individual is in and we're looking for what God is doing and watching for what he's up to. We want to understand the culture. Now, I don't ever want our strategies and our passions to be shaped by the culture around us. But I think there is precedent for us to understand the culture. In missiological terms, it's called contextualization. Anybody ever heard of that before, contextualization? A few of you guys. Uh, In the book of Acts, in chapter 18, Paul understood how to use the poetry of Athens to get to the heart longing of Athens intellectuals. He's like, I see that you have this statue to an unknown God just covering all of your bases, making sure that you have touched everything. Um, And I actually know your poets. You have this poem that says that in him we live and we move and we have our being. I want to tell you that that unknown God, he's Jesus Christ and in him you live, you move and you have your being he spoke their language and because of that people were interested in the gospels so i actually think that we should be watchful we need to take into account what is god doing culturally and what is working with the people around us does it work to stand in front of the strip club and rail on the strip club i don't know but it doesn't seem to work super well And so are there other ways that we can be watchful of the culture and say, okay, if people aren't receptive to that, I want to maximize receptivity. That's my heart, maximizing receptivity. So here's what we need to consider. What are the deep questions of the person who is in front of us? What are their deep desires? What are their deeply held beliefs? What do they long for? Lastly, verse 2, look back down at your Bibles. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Evangelism done from a place of gratitude is done from a place of trust and being completely filled by God. Allowing who God is and what he has already accomplished to become our primary focus will lead us to not make evangelism a sweaty endeavor. We don't want to get sweaty with evangelism. If you left tonight and you're like, he said it, we should be evangelizing, so I guess I have to. I just will feel guilty all week if I don't. No. Because what you're doing when you're evangelizing is you're also giving away your guilt as part of the package with Jesus. You didn't just give away the message of Jesus of salvation. You also gave away, hey, it's kind of good, but you get guilted into doing things like this. Instead, what we long for is overflow. Getting filled by him so that we just overflow. It just leaks out of us. We work from our identity being settled, not for it. We're approved. Already, we don't have to go evangelize to somehow earn points with God, no. And gratitude is the evidence of somebody who has their identity that is settled. Nothing can set you apart or season you like gratitude. You wanna be salty, get grateful for what God has done in your life. This is a quote from Sam Cain, just so good. The more you become a connoisseur of gratitude, isn't that a good phrase, connoisseur of gratitude, The less you are a victim of resentment, depression, and despair. Gratitude will act as an elixir that will gradually dissolve the hard shell of your ego, your need to possess and control, and transform you into a generous being. Take a photo of that or something. That is good. Gratitude is so rare in our world today that when seen in an individual, it demands an explanation. What is up with you? So here's what you learn. Next slide. Prayer. It's dependence on his working in the life of the outsider. Watchfulness. Wisdom in approach and attention to the father. Gratitude. Displaying a lifestyle that couldn't exist outside of a great Caregiver. Now, pause for a second, take a deep breath, that was a lot. I hear that this is in the room. Already, I can hear your hearts right now, I hear what you're thinking. Already, some of you are putting objections up in your hearts, you're like, starting random conversations is awkward, there's no way I'm doing this. I honestly don't want to lose friends. What would my friends say if i turn all my relationships into this like evangelism conquest? Deep down, this is honestly scary. What will people think about me? And though I think in general our fears reflect what we've given our hearts to, and I personally want more boldness, not less, there are many, many different ways of witnessing to the truth of Jesus. So I want to talk a little bit about this. How do I actually do this in my life? How do I do this? Well, here at Saints Hill, we believe that the first step is encounter with Jesus himself. Paul did not become a missionary before he encountered Jesus. It was an encounter that led him to give everything to Jesus. I want you guys to know intellectually and feel in your heart the deep sense of God's love and goodness in your life before you make it your aim to go out and evangelize the world. Why? Because you'll be doing it out of just a sweaty place if you don't. How many of you guys ever heard of The Send? It, it was an event that happened a couple weekends ago. A few of you guys have heard of The Send. Um, It it, it was this incredible event. Over 60,000 people gathered at this stadium in Florida a couple weekends ago. um, And there were several different people that organized it. Lou Engle, Todd White, Francis Chan were all in on basically getting a generation together and encountering God together to send people out empowered to see a new Jesus people movement take place and uh, Lou Engel, he said this. He says, I believe that Billy Graham's mantle of evangelism is going to be dispersed onto all believers and cause the next Jesus movement. How good is that? I'm like, we need some prophets in this house, am I right? Like, we need people who are speaking God's promises prophetically over, our, our, over Newburgh and over our church. And, and what they did... As they just got together at this stadium, you're like, really, another big Christian event getting together? Here's what they did. They spent time in the presence. They spent time in worship, seeking signs and wonders together, practicing so that they can take it outside of that stadium and touch many different nations in every state in the United States. We want encounter with him. Uh, When I was tasked uh, with starting the young adults ministry at Bridgetown, one of the things that I was tasked with was picking a vision. Like, what's the vision, man? What are we gonna actually do with the young adults here? And I remember I just had this phrase just kind of banging around in my head at the time, and it was, I wanna develop a people who believe that God is good enough to share. I wanna develop a people who believe that God is good enough to share. And people who believe that God is good enough to share, you know why they believe that? Because they've encountered his goodness. It's passion, not discipline or tools. It's beholding that moves us to witness to the truth. This is why when you come here, you're like, man, we spend a lot of time in worship. We spend a lot of time in prayer. Yes, because we want you to behold him. We want you to get a glimpse of him that transforms you into his likeness like it says in 2 Corinthians chapter three. We want you to get, I mean, think about this. Before Jesus, the disciples had just everyday jobs, very ordinary people. In fact, so ordinary that the Sanhedrin at one point said, these people aren't learned. They haven't gone to school. Who are these unlearned people turning the world upside down? Time with Jesus meant turning the world upside down. So our first step, if you want to be an evangelist, which there are some evangelists that are being raised up in this house. If you want to be an evangelist, step one is encounter. You must live a life of encounter. You must live a life in the throne room. But but step number two is, is this. It's searching like a bloodhound for opportunity. Just searching for opportunities. Look down at your Bibles, verse five. It says this. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. It's like just, I'm constantly looking, is there an opportunity here? Is there an opportunity there? There's a time in my life where um, I just, I dedicated myself to the Lord. I said, you know what? Every single day, I'm going to give a prophetic word, whether it's prophetic or not. Hopefully, it's prophetic. I'm going to give a word to somebody who I don't know that I just randomly come across. Now, this is like dangerous in Portland. You could get like beat up for this. But I was like, you know what? No matter the cost, I'm in. And so I remember, I just constantly, every day, I'm just looking for opportunities. Are you speaking about this person? Okay, not right now, but you are saying something about them. I'm going to go tell them. So I was constantly just tuned in. I have the mind of Christ. I'm discerning the thoughts of God. What are you saying? Do they line up with the scriptures? Okay, they do. I'm going in. We need to look for opportunities. So three opportunities just to kind of whet your appetite that I think we should look for. The first opportunity is this, the opportunity of bold faith. If we are becoming more and more like the first century, then we need to ask what caused Christianity to explode with growth in the first century. See, because Christians then lived in a hostile environment, they needed to have their answers ready. That's why it says here in the text, so that you may know how to answer everyone. You should have an answer for Christ. But the pursuit of principles of religion, answers, rather than the answer, is like pursuing a kingdom without a king. He is our answer, period. I really think there's no better tool of evangelism today than the demonstration of the kingdom. You could sit and you could argue with somebody who's read Sam Harris for hours. But you know what could happen in a moment if they're healed? They just jumped 18 different intellectual hurdles that they had with faith to go, I can't explain this, and I've just been touched with goodness. What is going on? right? I, I just want to share, this is from Noah, he's one of the guys in our community, uh, he's one of my high schoolers, so I like to think that some of this had to do with me, I don't know, maybe it did, maybe it didn't, probably not. Um, he I, he told, told me this story a year ago or so, and uh, it, it's just such a great story, so I'm going to share it with you guys. One night, Noah, he, he was having, this is from a text that he sent to me, because uh, I asked him for it today, uh, he, you, you were eating McDonald's in, in Clackamas High School's parking lot, I don't want to know why, but you were just, that's what you were doing. And uh, Noah goes up to a group of high schoolers. There are about 15 to 20 of them who are all getting dropped off and hanging out. And he asked them if he could share some of his story with them. I just love that boldness. Now, by the way, Noah told me this evening, he's like, I didn't have a word from God or anything. I was just convicted that I needed to witness to the truth. So I asked if I could share my story with them. After sharing my story and some healing testimonies, one kid spoke up and actually asked for prayer. He had a level 10 pain in his knees, and so I had his friend next to him touch the spot, and I just said, in the name of Jesus, be healed, to show them it was completely Jesus healing, it had nothing to do with my prayer. He was completely healed on the first prayer, he was a football player, and he started doing squats, pain free. Okay, yeah. Hey, if we're gonna clap, let's clap, right? Like, that's good news for somebody, right? Okay, people's interests were piqued. <laughs> you think? Uh, and a girl spoke up about having pain in her shoulder. She played volleyball. We prayed for her, and she was healed and could rotate it without any pain for the first time. Another kid asked for a prayer for his wrist. Again, a level ten, level ten pain in his wrist from it was it was broken and it hadn't com- healed completely. We prayed for him and he saw improvement on the first prayer and the second prayer, all pain went away. After that, I explained that healing is amazing and we could be here all night doing it, but the most important thing is relationship and that they had the opportunity to enter into relationship with Jesus. They witnessed Jesus heal their friends and now he wanted their hearts. We stood in a circle and literally held hands, high schoolers, And closed our eyes. I asked if anybody wanted to receive Jesus for the first time, and eight kids raised their hands. I led them through a prayer of salvation. Come on, like that's so good. What I want to do is I want to stoke that level of risk in this church. I want to stoke that level of faith in this church. You're like, but what if he doesn't show up? My question to you, what if he does? What if he does? What could happen at NAPS Thriftway? (laughs) I'm serious. Have you ever thought about NAPS being an opportunity for gospel expansion? What could happen at the gas station? What could happen if you made it your aim every class I go to as a college student? I'm going to ask God for a word for the professor. I'm going to share it with them. See, they think they're pouring themselves out for me. I'm here to bless them. It's gonna turn this town upside down. I really believe it. Our first opportunity is the opportunity of bold faith. God intends to get boldness into your heart. God, just give us courage, even right now, put your hands out. God, would you give us courage, would you give us boldness? That's what we want. We don't want to, we're not ashamed of the gospel of God. It is the power to save people. God, stoke evangelism in this, in this family. Secondly, is this the opportunity of relationship? I want you just to imagine what it would have been like to be a first century Christian. It's illegal, by the way, to be a Christian. Uh, You would have been considered a disruptor, you would have been seen as turning the world upside down. So you have to imagine to go stand on a street corner and shout at the local prostitute shrine would have literally been a death sentence. Christianity grew in large part to Christians being good neighbors, being good neighbors. See, all of us have people in our lives we encounter on a daily basis, and God intends for you to do two things in relationship. Enjoy the relationship. It's not an evangelism conquest. It isn't. It's a relationship. It's the goodness of God for you and for them. But secondly, he wants that relationship to put on display freedom and truth. So I just want you to ask yourself this question. Who? What relationship are you highlighting, Lord? And what opportunities have I not seen yet for witnessing to the truth of Jesus? Just show me opportunities so that I can just tell the truth and I can live the truth. Lastly, the opportunity of Alpha. Uh, a- as a church, we've linked arms with Alpha. It's an evangelism movement that has swept the entire globe. Over 27 million people have been through it. Phil, would you just raise your hand real fast? He was the one who did the intro. Phil leads Alpha for us. He's doing an amazing job. Uh, just really cool stories from Alpha. Um, we do Alpha twice a year for 10 weeks at a time. It's a meal, it's a presentation, and time to discuss And any question is welcome at Alpha. Alpha does two things really well. It holds hospitality and the Holy Spirit in a perfect balance. Just really, really beautifully. The story of Jesus is the story of us being invited in and hosted by Jesus. He takes outsiders, he hosts them to make them insiders, and then he makes the insiders become hosts. That's the story of the gospel. And this is a huge part of what causes Christianity to flourish in the first century. Rodney Stark, a historian on the first century, he said this. Among the pagans, you get the sense that no one took care of anyone else except in their tribal way. You take care of your brothers, and you kill everybody else. Christianity told the Greco-Roman world that the definition of brother has got to be a lot broader. There are some things you owe to any living human being. Hospitality. I encourage you next time we do Alpha to think about who could you ask to come with you and go through Alpha. It's an incredible uh, program that we have. So here's what I'm challenging you guys to do tonight. I gotta wrap this up, that went long. Here's what I, let's all stand up together. H- here's what I'm challenging you guys to do this evening. <laughs> could you start seeing the opportunities that you have differently What if you made the most with wisdom and grace and the relationships that you had? What would that look like? Second challenge for us as a church is to pray for people that they would come to know Jesus. Get the journal out and start writing some names down. Who do you want to see come to faith in Jesus? And then thirdly is this, look for opportunities to risk with great faith and trust him. The church that Jesus longs for is a church that witnesses to the truth.